Do we fall down and lay our crowns to the feet of Jesus? They may not be literal crowns. They might be metaphorical. But it's, can we say it's all about you, Jesus? It's all about God. That's one, you know, a, a, one important fact when we, or factor uh, component to worship is that when we come together, we're praising God, we're exalting God, but hopefully we are also reminded that it's not about me, it's not about us, it's all about God. Uh, and we all need reminded of that here and there, don't we? I know I do. And uh, so Romans 9, we're going to be going to Romans 9 here in just a moment. I want to remind you of the baptism coming up in um, three or so weeks. And I just heard on my way between Sunday school and worship of two more uh, children uh, that are interested in baptized. Isn't that exciting? We can give them a round of applause. So I'm going to be talking to those, uh, those two children with their parents uh, the week of VBS, after VBS one day. But that's exciting. So it sounds like we're going to have uh, hopefully about six getting baptized now. I think five children, I might be miscounting in my head right now, and one young adult. If you have not talked to me and maybe the Lord's nudging you to be believers baptized, baptized as a believer in Christ, uh, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. I want to share one other thing, and this doesn't relate to today's sermon. It relates to last, last Sunday's sermon. There is sometimes some revisionist history, revisionist. That means they're revising history, changing history. And that's happened with our national anthem as well. Um, our, our local newspaper, The Vindicator, published an article about the Star-Spangled Banner, the national anthem. And some have come out, and, and it's really ignorance of history. Maybe not willful ignorance. Maybe they just don't do their own study. Where they end up saying Francis Scott Key, and, and, and they say a certain verse in the national anthem, in the Star-Spangled Banner, in and of itself is racist. And I could share this article with you that clarifies that truth if you're interested in the article. But I'm going to summarize Uh, In that, I think it's a third verse, this article talks about Francis Scott Key was not talking about slavery as in chattel slavery, the American slave trade. He was talking about the British uh, troops because at that point in the United States of America, we prided ourselves in having a volunteer volunteer army, a volunteer military. It It was not a drafted military. But the British, at least at the enlisted level, had forced troops. They were, they, were, they were slave troops, kind of. And that's what Francis Scott Key was talking about in the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner of the National Anthem. He was not t- endorsing chattel slavery, American slave trade, or anything like that. He was talking about the, the army that we were fighting against. And I'd be glad to share that article with you if you're interested. But... Moving from there, we're going to move into Romans chapter 9. I think I said 8 a minute ago. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Once again, I need to give a disclaimer. If you follow along in the sermon manuscript, I'm going to skip over uh, some things, pretty much a whole page. So I promise, I almost promise, to at least go sequential. So if I do skip material and you're having trouble finding me, I do go sequ- I will uh, pretty much go sequential, though. But I will skip over some things. I told this illustration a few weeks ago, but maybe some of you weren't here or will forget it, and I thought it was fitting for today's sermon as well. There's a story told about a mother who came to Napoleon. A mother came to Napoleon, Napoleon, in the early 1800s, late, uh, late 1700s, you know, to trying to conquer Europe, military genius. And this mother came to Napoleon on behalf of her son, who was about to be executed. Her son was about to be executed. The mother asked the ruler to issue a pardon, but Napoleon pointed out, That it was the man's second offense. 
and justice demanded death. I don't ask for justice, the woman replied. I plead for mercy. The emperor Napoleon objected. But your son doesn't deserve mercy. Sir, the mother replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all that I ask. Her son was granted a pardon. You know, that gets to the very root of the definition of mercy. You know, someone has said is, uh, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy is God holding back what we do deserve. We all deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. That's, that, that's justice. We all deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the fires of hell because of our sin. But in God's mercy, he holds back that wrath and actually sent it upon Jesus, God the Son, being the perfect sacrifice, atoning for our sins. God gives us mercy. He gives us mercy through Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus did this so that we can be saved. God gives us these promises in his word. God gives us these promises in his word. So let's continue to look at them. My theme today is God's providence... The word of God has not failed. God's providence, the word of God has not failed. We're going to look at that in verses 6 through 13 of Romans chapter 9. The word of God, the promises of God have not failed. And, and here's a point, and you're going, to, you're going to hear me repeat this throughout this message so that, you can, uh, so that we can hopefully understand it. God is faithful. We can trust him. God is sovereign over the nations. That's one thing, a key theme, I think, is going on in Romans 9. God has a right to do what, with, with nations what he pleases. God has a right to exercise his divine sovereignty and providence over the nations. But here's a key point. The promise to Israel that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 with Abraham... I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make you a multitude of nations. Your descendants will be innumerable, as many as the sand, in the, uh, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heavens. That promise was through Isaac, not Ishmael. And that promise was through Jacob, not Esau. The promise was selected. And we're going to see that here as we look at Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. The application is that we can trust in God's word. We can trust in the promises of God. Amen? Amen. Isn't that awesome that we can trust in the promises of God? And as we get to the application section of this message, I'm going to kind of drive that home. There were many, many, many promises of God in Romans 8. It was hard to preach on Romans 8, verses 31 through 37 in just one sermon. As Steve said, as he came up to lead the closing song that day, we could have a, uh, several sermons on that passage. There are so many promises of God in the book of Romans. So many promises of God in Romans chapter 8. And those promises will, will not fail. We can trust in God's word. We can trust in the promises of God. And we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But first... We see the example of Ishmael and Isaac in verses 6 through 10. That's the Apostle Paul's first example of how God's word has not failed. The first example is Ishmael and Isaac. And God chose Isaac 
as the one the promises go through, not Ishmael. But first, how did we get to this section? Two weeks ago, we preached on Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, the apostle Paul shared that he would rather be accursed himself for the sake of his brethren. The apostle Paul desperately desired that his brethren, the Israelite people, would be saved. He really, 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 really wanted his ethnic group, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, to be saved. And he so badly wanted them to be saved that he said he would, if it were possible, if it were possible, he would rather that he himself were accursed for the sake of his brethren. And two weeks ago, I talked about that, that, that Greek word accursed is actually an anathema, anathema. And that meant Go to hell. The Apostle Paul would rather him, himself, and he's likely use a little bit of hyperbole here, but he would rather himself go to hell so that they would be saved. Now, the Apostle Paul knew that that was impossible. Nobody can take the place of another except for Jesus who took our place on the cross. But Paul was talking about his heart for the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11 is answering the question, if Jesus is the Messiah... Why have so many Jewish people rejected the gospel? And, 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 and as he makes this case, he's going to kind of bring it to a finale in chapter 11, saying that there's a partial hardening of their hearts going on. But that's, that's going to end at some point. And I shared two weeks ago that actually there's many various ministries to Jewish people. One is Chosen People Ministries, which is a great ministry. And we have remarkable numbers of Jewish people coming to know you as the Lord and Savior right now. And a lot, there, there, there have been studies. Dr. Adelnik talks about this on, on Moody Radio. Uh, his, his, his parents were at Auschwitz, and, and he has shared that before the Holocaust, there were many, many, many revivals of Jewish people coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior in those regions. So in reality, a lot of the people that were in the concentration camps were Messianic Jewish people. In other words, they were Christian Jewish people. They were saved. And still to this day, many are being saved. So this is why in verse 6, Paul anticipates the question, did the word of God fail? If many of the Jewish people were not saved, if many of the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah, does that mean the word of God has failed? Uh, did the promises of God fail? Did the promise of his special plan for Israel fail? And Paul is going to begin with two examples right now to show that God's promise is trustworthy. God's promise is true. God's word did not fail. And we do need to make sure always that we are understanding God's word correctly. We need to prayerfully discern God's word. And uh, the first principle in understanding God's word correctly is to read the Bible. And the second principle is to reread the Bible or that section in question. And the third principle is to read it again and slow down, slow down. Most of the time, we are so fast. Ye yesterday, somebody called in on Open Line on Moody Radio, and they asked Dr. Adelnick a question about a certain passage, and, and he said, have you read that passage? And, he, and they said, no. And he said, well, the first principle in understanding the Bible is to read the Bible. And many times as we read it a second and third time, and as we slow down, God will make it clear. Now, it's good to have study Bibles and to consult your teachers, your Sunday school teachers. We have great Sunday school teachers here. And, and to consult, you know, I, I loved answering Bible questions. But a lot of times they can be answered if we prayerfully read and slow down. You know, God is faithful. His promises are true. And we discern truth with the word of God first and foremost. 
There's a Greek word. Many of you probably don't know it's Greek, but it's eureka. Eureka. And John MacArthur shared this. He said, Eureka, it is a simple Greek word. It's only six letters long. But for a generation of treasure seekers in the late 1840s, it became a life slogan. Eureka, it means I have found it. I have found it. In English, the term purportedly comes from Archimedes, the Greek mathematician who cried out, Eureka, Eureka, when he determined how much gold was in King Hero's crown. Yet for James Marshall, who discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848, and many of his contemporaries, the term took on new meaning. For them, Eureka meant instant riches, early retirement, and a life of careless ease, carefree ease. It's no wonder California, called the Golden State, includes this term on its official seal, along with a picture of a zealous gold miner with the term Eureka. I have found it. News of Marshall's discovery at Sutter's Mill spread quickly throughout the nation. By 1850, over 75,000 hopefuls had traveled to California by land. And another 40,000 by sea. It's a lot of people by 1850 traveled to California to exclaim, Eureka, I have found it. Whether by wagon or by boat, the journey was an arduous one. As adventurers left friends and family behind in search of vast fortunes. Even when they finally arrived in San Francisco, the closest gold fields were still 150 miles away. And my kids would tell you that's a long journey in a minivan today, let alone back then. Undaunted, nonetheless, many of the 49ers set up mining camps and started to dig. As they traveled out to their various destinations, prospectors quickly learned that not everything that looked like gold actually was, right? Riverbeds and rock quarries could be full of golden specks and entirely worthless. This fool's gold was iron pyrite. And miners had to be able to distinguish it from the real thing. Their very livelihood depended on it. Experienced miners could tell you of two tests to determine fool's gold, iron pyrite versus the real thing. The first test involved biting the rock in question. Real gold is softer than the human tooth, while fool's gold is harder. A broken tooth meant that a prospector needed to keep digging and see a dentist. A second test involved scraping the rock on a piece of white stone, such as ceramic. True gold leaves a yellow streak, while the residue left by fool's gold is greenish black. In either case, a miner relied on tests to authenticate his finds. And then he could exclaim that Greek word, Eureka, I have found it. Here's the point of that. God's word has not failed. God's promises have not failed. And God's word is the gold standard, that, that test of ultimate truth. And the Apostle Paul is about to take apart the Old Testament passages to talk about how God's word has not failed, how God's promises have not failed. Paul is going to address that. And the first example he gives is Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac, Abram's uh, son through Sarah over Ishmael, Abram's son through Hagar. So let's read these verses. Romans 9, 6 through 7. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm sure that you're reading from the original Greek. Um, 
But let's read that. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and this is an Old Testament quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what does verse 6 mean? It is not as though the word of God has failed. What does that mean? You know, I love the language here. God's word never fails. God's promises do not fail. In Numbers chapter 23 verse 19, it says, God cannot lie or change his mind. That would contradict God's very being. And that's powerful when we talk about the promises of God of our salvation. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. He gave us a free gift of salvation through Jesus. And that does not change. God's word does not fail. So he says here, he says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And what does he mean by Israel right there? Israel could mean Jacob. If you recall in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So Israel could mean Jacob, but I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In Romans chapter 9, verse 7, he makes it clear when he's talking about Israel right here, he's talking about all the descendants of Abraham. All the descendants of Abraham. He is saying, for not all who are descended from Israel, meaning all the descendants of Abraham, are not all children of Abraham. But instead, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Not all of those born into the nation of Israel, truly members of Israel, being descended through Abraham does not do it. They had to be descended through Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. That's, that's verse 7. Verse 7, your offspring shall be traced through Isaac. Verse 7 is a quote from Genesis chapter 21 verse 12. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, God is telling Abraham the offspring are traced through Isaac, not Ishmael. Now look at verse 8. In verse 8, he says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise. Who are the children of promise? Early on, it was the children passed through Isaac, but later passed through Jacob. Only the children of promise. That's the children through Isaac. And we see the contrast here of flesh versus promise. Look at verse 9. Paul quotes Genesis 18.10 in verse 9. He says, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Again, that's a quote from Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. That was the promise given to Abram and Sarah. The following year, she would have a son, and that son would be who? Isaac. <laughs> Just making sure you're still awake. That son would be who? Isaac. God miraculously provided a baby, baby Isaac to Abram and Sarah. And Abraham was at that point 100 years old. And Sarah was at that point 90 years old. So they were pushing a baby carriage along with a walker. And so God was miraculously providing that child a promise. And right here, it's not all of those descended through Israel, through Abraham, were part of the promise, but those who came from Isaac. Isaac is a son of promise. We've established that. Now, through Isaac will come twins. However, God is still providentially, God is still providentially directing which of these children he is choosing. But I continue to want to show you that this is about God choosing a nation. This is about the nation of Israel, which God chooses over the nation, over the other nations. 
Uh, one person wrote, but Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers, right? Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers. Isaac's mother was Sarah. And Ishmael's mother was Hagar. So some people could easily think that God discriminated between the two on that basis. But Jacob and Esau, however, had the same mother and were conceived at the same time. And even with Jacob and Esau, God chose the line to pass through Jacob and not Esau. So let's look at that example. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Uh, Verses 11 through 13 read, Though they were not yet born... That's Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, this is Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So right there, when the twins were still in Rebekah's womb, God communicated to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. God is communicating, I have chosen Jacob over Esau, right there. This is, you know, God has a right to do with nations as he pleases. There's a word, um, it's called antimony, antimony. A-N-T-I-M-O-N-Y, antimony. And it basically means an apparent... um, uh, a contradiction. There are certain things in the Bible we look at and we think, how does this work? How does God's providence work with our free will? We see throughout the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that we do have free will. And we also see God's providence. And there's a mystery <laughs> that somehow God works out the two. And I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that for today. You know, somehow we see God's providence with our free will, and also our accountability to God. We are still accountable to God. So right here, before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or bad, before they were even born, God is saying, I'm choosing Jacob. The Messiah is going to come through Jacob. The Israelite line will come through Jacob. If you notice in verse 11, Paul is emphasizing that God choosing to follow the Israelite line through Jacob and and, and not Esau is God's free act. This is not about anything they had done, good or bad. Paul says they were not yet even born. Paul is emphasizing God's providence. God, Paul is emphasizing they hadn't even been born. And God is in his omniscience, knowing everything, in his omnipotence, his all power, and his omnipresence, present everywhere, had already made his plan. Again, I believe this is about God having his way with nations. God chose Israel over other nations. But I want to emphasize something very, 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 very important right now. Although God chose the line of Israel for the Messiah to pass through Jacob and not Esau, the line of Esau can still be saved. This is not about here individual predestination. This is about God, how God chose a nation of Israel to come through Jacob and not Israel. Non-Israelites could be saved. In the Old Testament, we see God calling Israelites to be a witness to other nations. That's what Jonah is about. Jonah was to go to the Ninevites, and when he did go to Nineveh, the city of sin, there was close to a million people who repented. One of the biggest revivals, if not the biggest revival of history. Non-Israelites could still be saved. God still wants all to come to repentance. And that's true today. Second Peter 3.8-9, God desires all to come to repentance. But God has a right to do what he wants through nations. So what did God do? 
In verse 12b through 13, we see that he chose Jacob, the second-born twin, son of Isaac over Esau, the first-born twin. Again, in verse 12, Genesis 25, 23, the older will serve the younger. In verse 13, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 is quoted, and it's somewhat harsh at first glance. So I'm going to explain it, and maybe it'll be less harsh, maybe it won't. But uh, that's Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, which says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is where God uses great Bible teachers, and God uses people who know original language. And years and years and years ago, I was listening to Dr. Adelnick on Moody Radio. I was was cutting grass in Alliance, and I had to stop and make a note as he shared, this could better be translated, Jacob I have chosen, but Esau I have rejected. It's not really about God really hating the person of Esau. It's about God rejecting Esau for the line of Israel to pass through. God chose Jacob for the line of Israel to pass through. God chose Jacob for the Messiah to come from and not Esau. One person writes, As to Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Uh, once, a woman once said to Mr. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great 18, uh, 19th century preacher in the 1800s. And this person said to Mr. Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Mr. Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And if you know how Jacob went about conniving and being deceitful, it wasn't about who Jacob was. It was about God's providential plan. But in reality, we are all sinners. And we all have issues because of that sin. We all have sin that needs atoned for. And so we could ultimately apply that to all of us. How could God love any of us? Our sin is treason against Almighty God. And many times, even in our sinful ways, we question God. How could he do this? How could he do that? And we do not realize who we are questioning. We do not realize who we are versus who God is. And later on, the Apostle Paul is going to come back to that and in this same chapter, can the potter, can the, can the clay speak back to the potter? Why did you make me this way? God is sovereign. One source shares both nations, both nations, Israel and Esau's nation, Edom. Both nations were punished for their sins, but only one received grace. I have loved Jacob means God chose or elected his descendants, the nation of Israel. Whereas I have hated Esau means that God rejected the nation that stemmed from Esau. God rejected that nation for his covenantal plan, which would be Edom. Let's make some applications here. We can trust in the promises of God. That's what verse 6 is about. God's promises have not failed. We can trust in the promises of God. God's promises are true and clear and sure, and they still will be fulfilled. We can still trust in the promises of God. We can Now, now let's think about some of the promises of God and how they come to be. We can trust in God's word. When you study God's word and you see all these promises in God's word, we can trust in the promises of his word. We can trust in God's promise for salvation. In John chapter 1, verse 12, in John chapter 3, verse 16, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it's all promises about salvation. And we can trust in those promises. God is not going to change his mind about your salvation or my salvation. 
When God wrote through John, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit everlasting life. That promise is sure and steadfast. It is true. God does not lie or change his mind. He does not need to lie or change his mind because he is God and he knows the future. That promise is true. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me about, about himself. That promise is true. We can trust in those promises. And that promise is true for all time. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21, it's more promises about God's, salva God's salvation plan. We can trust it. We can trust in the Holy Spirit's presence with us, which you see in John 14, 16 and Romans 8, 9. If when God promised to give us the Holy Spirit, we can trust in those promises. We can, we, we can have God's peace. John 14, 27, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. Peace not as the world gives. We can trust in these promises. We can trust in Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18, powerful passage. Listen to that verse. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is a powerful verse, and we can trust in those promises. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We can trust the Holy Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. That's a promise in Romans 8, 27. And we can trust that God causes all things to work together for good. That's Romans 8, 28. We can trust God's logical plan of salvation. That's Romans 8, 29 through 30. We can trust that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans 8, 31. We can trust that if God did not spare his own son, what else will he not do for us? That's Romans 8, 32. An argument from the lesser to the greater. If God did not spare his own son for us, what else will he not do for us? We can trust that no one, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. That's Romans 8.33, because God justified us. Since God has justified us, that means God has declared us righteous. No one can bring a charge against those who are in Christ Jesus, which hopefully is all of us here. We can trust God's word that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35 through 39. We can trust in the promise of the millennial reign in the future and the new heaven and the new earth as well in Isaiah 60 and Isaiah 66, 22 and Revelation 21 and 22. These are promises of God that we can trust in. God's promises are sure and steadfast and true. We can trust, we must Trust in God for salvation. God is faithful. We must trust in God for our life now and make him Lord of our life. We must not think that we get a free pass to heaven because of ethnicity or background. God does not have grandchildren. All of you here, all of us here need to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Jewish people had to and still have to as well. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in the book of Romans. This whole passage... It's about God choosing Israel to bring the Messiah into the world. We must worship him for how great he is and for our salvation. So how do we get our bearings? How do we discern the promises of God? We have to go back to the word of God. In the early days of aviation, planes were not yet equipped with gyroscopic turn indicators. I read this. We actually have a pilot here, so I hope this is right. And I didn't write it myself. Uh, when pilots flew through the clouds or fog, they would often become disoriented. 
And because the inner ear does not accurately perceive a bank turn, they sometimes got caught in steep spiral dives called graveyard spirals. Pilot and author William Langeweich describes one such incident. In December of 1925, a young army pilot named Carl Crane got caught in the clouds at 8,000 feet directly over Detroit while trying to fly a congressman's son to Washington, D.C. in a biplane. So here he is, 8,000 feet over Detroit, trying to fly a congressman's son uh, from Detroit to Toledo, um, actually to Washington, D.C. in a biplane. Crane later said, in a short time I was losing altitude, completely out of control. I could not fly the airplane at all. It had got into a spiral dive. Halfway down, I looked around at my boy in the back, the congressman's son, and he was enjoying the flight to no end. He was shaking his hands and grinning, and, and I was slowly dying because I knew we were going to crash. Crane did not know which, which, Crane did not know which wing was down let alone by how much. If he tried to level the wings, he was just as likely to roll down upside down as right side up. Again, they did not have that gyroscopic turn indicator. If he tried to raise the nose, the effect would be exactly the opposite. The turn would quickly, the turn would quicken, steepening the descent. Finally, the plane got down to under 1,000 feet, and I said, well, this is his writing. Well, here we go. I'm going to look at my boy once more, and as I turned around to look at him, a sign went by my wing. It said, Statler Hotel. I had just missed the top of the Statler Hotel building. In all the mist and rain, I could see the buildings and the streets. I flew down the street and got over the Detroit River, and I flew about 10 feet high all the way to Toledo, shaking all the way. In life, as in flying, it is all important that we have our bearings as Christians. How do we keep our bearings? By going to the Word of God in prayer. We can trust God's Word. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is driving home right here. He's going to continue this point through the rest of Romans chapter 9. We can trust in God's Word. We can trust in the promises of God. This passage is the beginning of Paul showing that. God was faithful. God is faithful. God was faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. God is still faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. Way back at 2000 B.C., and Genesis chapter 12, that promise he made to Abram is still true. We must keep our focus on Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the many, many, many promises you have in your word right here. And I thank you, Lord God, that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, illuminating the scriptures, helping us understand your word. For without the Holy Spirit, we really could not understand and apply correctly your word. Lord God, I pray for this congregation, for all of us, myself included, as I am part of the congregation at Bethel Friends. Lord God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the word which has been preached this morning and apply it to our lives and convict us as we go. And Lord God, as I always say, if there's anyone here right now who is unsure of their salvation in you, we know your word says in 1 John that we can know that we are saved. And I pray that today would be the day for that person or those individuals to tell you in a simple prayer that they confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They believe in you as the one and only Savior. They are trusting in you and committing to you. They are firmly making the decision to be with you in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, 
and they are going to arrange their affairs around you. Lord God, help us all arranging our affairs around you. Help us all arranging our lives around you, living in a relationship with you. We can't do it on our own. We desperately need the Holy Spirit guiding us. And we need your word and we need the church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I always say, if you have any questions about God or the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. The altars are always open. If the Lord has led anything on your heart that you want to pray about anything, come on forward as the praise team leads the closing song.